Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Welcome back to With You Every Step. This week is part two of Ali Pepper's story. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I highly suggest stop pause, go back, listen to last week's episode, and then continue on with this one. We hope you enjoy this episode. It is really quite emotional, riveting, and raw. She's so honest, and I hope you enjoy listening to Ellie as much as I enjoyed talking to her. So tell me more about your summit to Everest. Yeah, so, well, essentially, I fulfilled part of my goal, but not all of it. So basically went to the Lotsy Face Camp, Camp 3, on one of our acclimatization rotations, which we call them, when you go from the base camp and up and back. Climb high, sometimes sleep high, and then go back down low. Yeah, so I went up to 7,300 metres and I realised that because I hadn't spent any time at altitude in the last three years it wasn't to do with like not climbing and putting crampons on because that just I'd had enough of that experience for it to come back straight away Mm -hmm. the body just not performing like it used to I realized pretty quickly at that height that I wasn't climbing fast enough to stay warm up high so what are the temperatures like up there On the summit day, I accidentally chose the wrong day, but that's another part of the story. We had 60K, like it's a day that you wouldn't go to the summit. We had a 60K in our winds and probably with the wind chill, it was down to minus 50 something. Oh my gosh. So anyhow, I knew the thing with oxygen is that it instantly warms your appendages, almost instantly. If you're not using it up there, only available oxygen goes to your core Mm -hmm. to keep yourself alive. And your hands and your feet get really, really cold. And you need to be moving at a certain pace to try to move that blood around. But of course your body needs to be able to move at that pace, right? And anyhow, so I've I've quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to move at the pace that I wanted to to stay warm and to actually get to the summit. I thought that I could probably get to maybe the same height as Chihuahua if I was lucky, but it was going to be way harder because I hadn't spent time at altitude in the year. I just kind of came back to the base camp and sort of had to think pretty hard about it because it was really important to me to not use oxygen. I think because of my background of how hard it was to to get the money (laughs) for the trip, I actually just decided, okay, am I going to just go up, which I've done on other trips. I've gone up as high as I could without oxygen and come back. Am I going to do that? Or am I going to summit the bloody mountain with it and admit that it's too hard (laughs) to do without and maybe come back or just be happy with that? And I decided because of how hard it was to get there, 
and how much money for me and commitment and training, etc., which is like everyone on Everest, that I would suck it up and let go of that particular goal and just do my best to make it to the top using oxygen. Okay. Then made the ordeal of where do I get it? Oh, you didn't have any. <laughs> no, I didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully like i said i'm talking about all these friends guiding on everest i have all these friends that guide on everest and i was able to run around and get some bottles of people's teams of clients that had left you see uh-huh. so that was helpful obviously that came in an expense um an additional <laughs> expense but i got them and then dawa managed to as we were climbing get them up there and that was a very big tip for him because he worked additional time if that makes sense to porter the the bottles up how big are the bottles so the bottles weigh about four kilos full and three kilos empty okay and believe it or not they managed to fit a thousand liters of oxygen in these things so they're highly pressurized almost dangerous i suppose in a way and how many bottles do you need to be able to do that how many did you go through that one i can't quite remember because we gave some away okay we couldn't figure out exactly how many we ended up using because we actually gave some to his his brother-in-law's team because they run out. It's a good question. I don't know. I think I used about three or four bottles. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when we went up the next time to go to the summit, I then started on oxygen at 7,300. Does your Sherpa then use oxy- oxygen as well? So he doesn't need to until summer day. Okay. He can go more faster than me (laughs) without oxygen until higher up, I guess. Then we sort of become even, Stevens. Mm -hmm. He would be on a lower flow rate. So so there's there's a lot to do with oxygen and how people use it. I essentially used it when walking. And I would go from one litre a minute to about two litres a minute, which is which is hardly anything. These days, they would use up to six litres a minute. Oh, my gosh. For clients, which is insane. They go a faster itinerary. Oh, so because they're walking faster, they obviously need more oxygen. So that's why they're going through it so quick. They're going up higher, quicker to sell these shorter trips to people because people who want to climb don't have the time to acclimatize and they rely on a lot of oxygen at high flow rates to essentially lower the altitude of the mountain to get them to the summit and back. And so the the problem with that is if there's any issue with the oxygen, because sometimes this happens, people steal bottles or they break or the mask breaks, regulator breaks, what have you, these people essentially are going to be almost killing themselves. Yeah, because then they won't be able to acclimatize quick enough. Because all of a sudden they're at 8,000 whatever metres, yes. And so they had that happen 
last season, I think it was, they were doing a fast ascent with the clients and the regulators blew because of the humidity in the air up high, above 8,000. And it was going to be a disaster in this guided group. However, they managed to to swap stuff around from Sherpas and I don't know how, but they got the clients down without them having a huge incident. So from what I'm gathering, you don't agree with that, right? Because it's too dangerous. No, I'm not saying I don't agree. I'm just pointing out a fact. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I don't like to have too many opinions about things on Everest because there's lots of sides to every story that I have seen while I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah, but I'm assuming these people get told that the risk of doing it in such a short amount of time is quite serious, like there is a a huge risk in the, the choices they're making. Any client that plans to climb Everest needs to know there is a lot of risks, but I don't know that they care too much. (laughs) If that's the person's goal and they're, they're putting their faith in the guiding company, what I do suggest is to go with the Western one. It's more expensive, but it's better run. There are a lot more safety procedures in place. Okay, so then going with a local company. Correct. Unless you're a climber yourself and you feel like you can climb the mountain yourself and make your own decisions and you have the experience and you're not a client, then I suggest go with a very well-known, established Western company. Yeah, I think that's really good. And and, and if you you do choose the, the fast ascent, you need to just be aware of the risks of it. Like looking at a company online and you see, oh, you know, there's a three-day option, 10-day option, five-day option, whatever it is, you go, oh, okay, well, I've only got five days. I'll do the five-day option, not realizing that the risks are a lot higher. You're just thinking, oh, maybe it's a different way you're going or there's a whole different thing that can be happening. Yeah. People just have this mentality, I guess, when it comes to planning a holiday, like let's go – with the cheapest option mm. and the and the quickest that, so we can get it done in the time frame that we want rather than I want to achieve the goal the best way possible. And the because you don't always possible. achieve the goal, which is but perhaps the goal is getting to Everest Base Camp. A lot of people don't achieve it. They don't actually even get there. They fly out in a helicopter halfway up because they've gone with the cheap company who promises the fast schedule and the company doesn't care. You've paid the money. They've got the money. They don't care whether you fly out in a helicopter or you don't make it. What do they care? Because they've got your money. Yeah, it's a bit scary. But, yeah, do your research like always, like we always say on every episode. Do your research. Make sure that you're going through the right company. Yeah, it's hard you know like you want to go with companies that are have been doing it for a long time you know they have a long uh, reputation in the area they support local projects in the area the environmental projects you know schools things like that they employ the locals and pay them well so obviously a cheap company isn't going to pay their porters much money, etc. 
the more money you pay, the more money essentially they they make the staff. <laughs> Hopefully. And the longer itinerary. I mean, that's to me that just sounds like common sense, yeah. but that's only because I have a background in it. Well, that's right. People always will ask me because I guide, you know, mountains, can we buy the cheaper option of equipment? And I say, well, let's just say the trip itself costs, like mount, no one is going to decide to sort of climb mountains and not expect to spend money, like let's just say. I don't even know how much money, hundreds of thousands of dollars I've spent on it. But if you're going to invest in the trip, why then try to save on the equipment? Yeah, the important stuff. Exactly. At the end of the day, if you want to achieve your goal, then it's going to be sometimes more money. You may as well get the best thing for the job, okay, that's reliable. You may have to take extra time off work, but if that's the goal, then it shouldn't matter. Do you, do you see what I mean? Like, well, pick yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you only have a certain amount of time, then don't pick that trip or yeah. don't pick that climb. Yeah, people are like, oh, but, you know, I want to climb this mountain, but I, I've only had this time off. It's like, but that's not the right season to climb the mountain. So if you want to go and have an epi, the weather's terrible. And you're, you're going to have a 10% chance of making the summit and it's going to be like colder than any other time of year, then great, go for it. But you have to be aware, like you're probably going to spend all that money and not get the summit. Or <laughs> if you look at the mountain, you can say, well, I'm going to climb at the best time of the season. I'm going to go with the longest itinerary. I'm going to take the best gear and I'm going to spend that money and, and have a better chance of making the summit. Or you can go back four times if you like. You know, I mean, like I went to Everest that one time. I did make it to the summit that one time and came back. How was the summit when you got there? Cold. (laughs) Well, like I said, I essentially stuffed up in terms of the weather. So with every experience, I change the the things I do and have and equipment backups and all this kind of thing because I learn. But from that trip, I hadn't paid for a weather forecast. And, and they're not cheap to have these forecasters around the world. High-level forecasters give you the high-level weather forecast. So what do you mean you have to pay for that? So most of the big guiding companies will pay the entire season. Um, it's quite expensive, but it's okay for them because they make the money with these forecasts, there's, there's a few different places that do it. I've been using one in Switzerland. That's their job. So they do weather forecasting for lots of different things like oil rigs, people out in boats in the middle of the ocean, mountaineers. I don't know. I guess I had this image that once you get to base camp and you're going to go and do this amazing thing, that there would be automatically those kinds of things in place to help the safety of people. I didn't think you would have to pay extra for that kind of stuff. You know, because there are there are obviously like weather sites that you can use, which I do use that are free, but they're not as accurate, let's just say, as to pay. So anyhow, I hadn't paid and I didn't have internet at the base camp. No, yeah. 
I, again, thankfully asked some friends who, who had paid what the best weather window would be for me. And I, I left the base camp with that in mind. But what I didn't know was that that forecast had changed while I was on the way up. Oh, okay. I understand. Because I was thinking at base camp, how did they not tell you that that's not, you know, it's not the best time to go now or that's what I was thinking. Because how long does it take you from base camp to get to the top of Everest? Five days. Is that pretty quick? It sounds quick. Well, not once you're acclimatised, no. So, so most experienced climbers will do it in about five days? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's what you call your summit rotation. So when you know you have your weather window, you then head up from the base camp do it in one push kind of thing but you typically I would go to from base camp to camp two in the western coombe in one hit I've only stayed at camp one once ever because it's not the greatest camp above the ice fall so I'd go camp one camp two and that was a huge day so I'd have a rest day the next day because climbing up the lotsy face is quite hard because it's so steep so from camp two, then I climb up the Watsi face to the camp in the middle of the Watsi face, which is camp three. So this is another mountain, but this is the way to get to Everest summit. No, this is on Everest. So Everest, oh, so Lotsi is on Everest? Sorry, I'm a bit confused. It's right next to it. It's like a part, and Nupsi is this, sort of the same ridge. Everest is on the the left as you walk up the Western Coombe. Lotsi is straight ahead, and the route to climb Everest goes through the middle of the Western Coombe, up the Lotsi face, which is a steep face, and then it traverses left across the Geneva Spur and up to the South Pole, which is the saddle in between Lotsi and Everest on a ridge, a flat spot on the ridge. From there you go to the summit. The height of the coal is about just under 8,000. I think it's 7,950. You climb up a face, uh, which is not a ridge, (laughs) to the ridge, and then you start climbing along the ridge to the south summit and then to the true summit. Okay. That's basically the way. Like I said, I, I headed off, thought that would be the perfect summit day, and it seems like it was. We started at 10 p.m., 10 p.m.? Yep. At night? Correct. In the dark? Yes. That's that's what you have to do. You go at night? <laughs> yes, you have to go at night because otherwise you'll come back in the dark of the next day because it takes so long. Otherwise, you know, you turn around and time's too late. So you leave at 10 or you like a lot of people leave earlier than that, but I wasn't interested in leaving earlier than 10 p.m. We headed off and it was warm, so it was only minus 10. To me, that's the optimal. That, that is my optimal temperature. I could live in minus 10 and I'd be happy my whole life. Yep. So there was no wind. There was no cloud. It was starry and perfect. We overtook a lot of people because we were moving quite fast, Dara and I, at the beginning until we hit the ridge and we were unable to get past people. And, yeah, when we hit the ridge, it started to get very, very windy and cloudy, unfortunately. And what we didn't know is that we were going to be climbing into a storm. Mm. As we sort of 
climbed higher and we got stuck behind a line of people and became very sleepy because we weren't going at our pace. Yeah. So you, and you can't you can't go around them. It's really hard to go around them. Yeah. Because you're on a you're on a line and and we have like we do go around them when we can. If there's space, climb around. We would climb around. But when the, the risk of climbing around is that you're not clipped to anything when you when you decide to climb past someone. Oh, because you're clipped onto a rope. Well, you were, and then you go around them, and then you're not because yeah. you have to go around them, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we do, like, we would pass people all the time on the Watsy face because they're going too slow, but there'd be more space. But when you're on a ridge, it's quite difficult because there's drops on either side to get get past people. Anyhow, when we sort of got to the south summit, we realised, like, we were in a storm. Like, it was super windy, pushing you sideways type wind. The the fixed rope was up in the air. I had never climbed in such conditions <laughs> at such height before. Pretty much everybody was just turning around because as you would, you know, if you're guiding, you would not have your clients up there in that, in no, no way. And if I was guiding, I would have done the same. However, I wasn't. It was just between Dara and I, were we happy to keep going or not? And to be honest, I didn't know if I was happy, but I didn't have the brain power, the limited amount of oxygen I was sucking Mm. (laughs) to think, would I, was I happy to continue? I just didn't realize how um, hard that section of the mountain was. It was like a, like you say, a narrow path that you can fit one foot on at a time except drops either side. So not just one side, both. Oh, my gosh, my heart is racing. Yeah, like thousands of metres down. And and my issue at the time was I I borrowed a mask that didn't fit my face. It was a very old Russian thing. And it blocked a lot of my vision because it sort of sat over my nose and blocked my vision in the middle of my eyes kind of thing. It was very uh, uncomfortable so I couldn't see properly. And it kept pushing my goggles up and then the the air would go into my goggles and freeze, you see. So I couldn't see out the base of my goggles. I could only see out the top. So I actually had to have one hand like pushing my goggles down to see. So that hand couldn't help me kind of balance. Mm. And it was quite scary, but I said to Dawa, somehow we managed to communicate, find out how far it was, because I didn't really know how far from the South Summit to the True Summit. If, now when I look at a photo, I'm like, oh, well, obviously it's a long way. Quite naive as I am, just fell into climbing 8,000 meter mountains. And I didn't know how far. And he said, well, it's 30 minutes. And I thought, well, I think I can handle this extremeness for 30 minutes because we're almost there. How do you communicate? Because you've got all this stuff on. How do you actually hear each other? Yeah, we were just screaming at each other basically like really closely because you can't move the mask. You've got all the down suit frozen shut and stuff. So anyway... And and he had his brother-in-law, I talked about his brother-in-law, he had his brother-in-law in front of us. 
because he hadn't seen him turn back. And his brother-in-law was guiding a couple of Indian clients with another Sherpa guide. And he just figured, you know, if his brother-in-law, Nima, hadn't turned back yet, then then he could keep going. Okay. I was thinking at the time, which yep. we didn't discuss until later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My only thinking was this. I can feel my hands and my feet. That is all I thought. And I just thought, until I can't, I'm going to keep going. So I did keep going and I just followed Dawa's footsteps one at a time very closely, exactly where he stepped for three hours. Not 30 minutes. Not 30 minutes. Oh, my God. Uh, part, of, part of that included climbing up the Hillary step, which was a vertical section of rock. That took a while because it was exhausting. It managed to get flatter and wider and less stressful towards the summit. And then finally in the distance, not even the distance, because we couldn't see that far ahead. It was so cloudy, but you could make out a few figures. And I thought, well, that's got to be it. Like why else would everybody be standing in a, in a you know, clump? Mm-hmm. And, and we made it. And there was 18... People that day, including the Sherpa guides and climbers, that made the top. Wow. And amazingly, I took a picture when I first got there of all the group and I didn't know this until I arrived at the hotel back in Kathmandu and there was a woman at the hotel called Margaret who was at the time 61 she said, did you summit? I said, yes. And we knew each other like from the mountain kind of thing. And I said, did you summit? And she said, yes. And we said, what day? And it was the same day. <laughs> and I said, you're joking. And she goes, what time? And I said, 8.30 in the morning. She goes, well, I got there just before 8.30. And I said, what? And I got my camera and I showed her the picture and she was in the photo. But we had no idea, you know, like there's just there's people in down suits with masks on, like who would know who is who? Yeah. But she happened to be there. And in your photo. Yes. And, and what, had, what had happened for her was her guide had turned the group around, but she was in front and it was her second attempt and she had turned around at the south face on her first attempt and she was just refusing to turn around. So she had made sure she'd gone in front of the guy with her Sherpa and kept going <laughs> and that and she actually made it. And so I'm assuming from what you've said that the visibility was really not that good. No, so there was no view, nothing. Oh, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Super windy. And then coming back down, it was very hard because of a few reasons. Obviously, you're exhausted. So you get up there. You leave at 10 p.m. You get up there at 8.30. Have you stopped and slept at all? No, I haven't even been able to eat or drink because I had a water bottle in a bottle like an insulated cover wrapped in a jacket in my backpack and it was frozen solid. So I took this kilo, literally rock, to the summit and back without being able to drink it. So that's a long time without having any water. 
Oh, yeah, well, it continued. But then my snacks that I made so lovingly cut up my cheese and salami and chocolate and things and put them in my inside pocket of my down suit so that I they wouldn't freeze. My mask just dripped all this condensation down onto the front of my down suit, which froze my zipper shut. So I couldn't even get my snacks out. Okay, I've got another question. How do you go to the toilet? Well, I had to go to the toilet on the South Summit because I was busting to to do a wee on the way back. And obviously, like, you can't go in your down suit. I had to stop and you're wearing a harness and you have what's called a rainbow zip. And the rainbow zip in the down suit goes around your bum like a rainbow. So you can unzip it and then you have a little flap that you can open up, pull down your tights, do your wee, and then pull them up again and do your zipper. But it takes... Okay, because I was wondering, you can't take your whole suit off. Like, how do you do this? No, yeah, no. So they have these little flaps in them. So for the boys, they do their poos out the back and they're lucky enough to have a snorkel. They can do their pee normally, just a little zip at the front. But us girls, we have to use the rainbow zip yeah. to do our wees. Okay. I know this is a really awkward question, but do you do it on the actual path? Because you can't get off the path, right? How do you do this? Oh, well, on the south side, I just can't walk to the side. But it was so windy and cold that it just basically came out as snow instantly. <laughs> the snap froze. So it didn't make any mess. It just blew away as snow. <laughs> so I didn't really leave anything there and continued on my merry way. Well, it was merry for a while until I saw uh, two people stopped on the ridge in the windiest part of the, the is, ridge. This on the way back? Down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I realized, oh, I had a sinking feeling. I mean, I was exhausted as it was, but I had a sinking feeling that this something was obviously very wrong. And when uh, we got there, unfortunately, one of the climbers, a Japanese man, was unconscious, well, close to death. So we tried to help them. There was a his guide who wasn't a Sherpa, he was a Tamang or Rai or another caste who'd been with him. We attempted to to move him, but he was on a part which was a very kind of like a traverse. So we literally had to carry the guy and we just tried and tried and we couldn't budge him. We just didn't have the manpower. There wasn't enough of us. And then I attempted to give him some uh, an injection to to help with his cerebral edema, which he would have had. What is that? When your brain swells and you can't from the cold. Move. No, from the altitude. Oh, altitude. But yeah. he would have been hypothermic also. Anyway, just to do something to help. But I was just trying to give this injection which I had it in my outside pocket, but because the injection would just kept freezing, I kept putting it in my mouth to like turn it into liquid. And the instant I took it out to give it to him, it snapped, froze solid. So I couldn't give that to him. And then I tried to shove some tablets in his mouth. He just couldn't even swallow at that point because his eyes were kind of rolled back in his head and 
he wasn't, you know, far from death. We spent maybe 20 minutes there trying to help and then realised I just had this realisation all of a sudden it's going to be me in about two minutes' time. (gasps) I'm going to be the unconscious person. I have nothing left to give. Like, I will be dead. So I just had to turn to Dawa and say, like, I I can't stay any longer. We tried everything that we could with the amount of people we had and we couldn't do anything, so we had to leave them. We didn't have a radio, so we were trying to catch up to someone who had a radio to get help and radio down to the base camp uh, to the rest of his team. That was the only help that we could give. We had to continue on. So when you say that you thought you only had two minutes, what were the signs that you were getting that was telling you that something's not right? I was almost passing out, like, at that point. You know, like, I was, it was the coldest, windiest, like, exposed section of the ridge. It was literally, like, the worst place for that guy to stop. Okay. If there had been another half an hour down the ridge where we could have abseiled with him down the face, then we could have got him down. We could have dragged him down. But it was a traverse where we had to carry him and we just couldn't carry him. And it was just so cold. Like I was frozen to the bone trying to help having to take my mitts off um, and just standing in that one spot for 20 minutes. If you're taking your mitts off, are you getting frostbite? I didn't get frostbite, luckily, because I had, like, um, thin gloves underneath, but I was constantly having to put them back on, take them off, try to do something, put them back, you know, like it was not easy. So then Dawa's oxygen ran out and he just started to go very slow and I just kind of used what I had left to get down to the coal and I just kept watching. He was still coming but he got back, you know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes after me to the tent. Like typically you would continue down, like you would pack the tent and go to the to the lower camp, but we couldn't even, like we just were, we couldn't move. We were so exhausted from being in the storm, not having drunk anything or eaten anything for 16 hours. Oh, my gosh. We couldn't go anywhere, and Nima had gone, to, had arrived back down as well just before us with his clients, and they had no oxygen left. So we had to give them our spare stuff so we could all sleep the night there. And the worst part about all of this is that, well, not the worst part because that, di- that guy died. That is obviously the worst part. I had one of my close friends at the camp who was getting ready to guide the summit that night with a huge team of Sherpa and a kitchen, literally, with food and water and everything. And they were maybe 50 metres from us and they could have given us food, water, oxygen, whatever we wanted. And I didn't know they were there. So we just <laughs> just sat in, in the tent, yeah, like exhausted. Um, it took a really long time to be able to have the energy to to melt some snow and make water. All my sacks were frozen anyway once I managed to undo my zip in my down suit. We had to spend another night, and in the night the the oxygen ran out because, as I said, we didn't have what well, we had to. We gave our spare stuff 
to the other team and it was very, very cold and hard. We were just sharing one sleeping bag between us because we didn't want to carry, you know, too much stuff up. It was a long night and then the next day the sun was out and it was perfect weather, no wind. Oh, good. Well, good, but that was our summit day, you know, like that was the day we should have gone out. And that's the day my friend guided guided the summit and had a great old time with a perfect view. The guy turned out to be a Japanese man, which surprisingly had done in the 80s a new route on Everest without oxygen. But one that passed away? Yes. Mm. You know, I wrote about it in my blog and his family contacted me because they wanted to know more about it and... You know, and I I just, I mean, what can you say? They were very thankful that we tried to help him and and I I don't know. I don't know what happened. I asked other people on the day if they'd seen him and they said they had seen him going towards the south summit and he was stumbling and not going too well and the, the guide was trying to turn him around but he wouldn't listen to the guide until he was almost unconscious and at that point the guy could literally drag him down while he was still upright. He was at the point he couldn't walk anymore and then the guy just hugged him basically until the end and he he came down to the camp. You know, some Sherpas came up to try to help but they couldn't reach them. Well, I fight through my tears. <laughs> Uh, I know. It was very, very sad. It's very life. sad. Couldn't imagine being the family to that person. I know, I know, I know. And he had kids and, you know, like, yeah. And it was surprising because he he should have known better, you know. Like, he, he had experience climbing high and I think he was going for a fast ascent using oxygen and I don't know what happened but the ego or something got in the way and then that's that's unfortunately what has and you know I mean I'm not saying like my climbing partner died because of his ego but but when you're at that level sometimes you know your, your decisions get clouded because of your goal yeah and with my climbing partner unfortunately they crossed a slope where it was to anyone who who spends time in the backcountry knows that that's an avalanche slope or risk because of the weather that had happened prior to then and the type of slope and everything. And and they cut a corner to save time, you know, rather than climbing up and over a, a mountain on this ridge. They were they only had a few days of good weather and they had to go fast and and they cut. They cut a corner and they literally cut the whole slope of avalanche. They triggered it on themselves and then that was it. What happens with the bodies? Can they retrieve the bodies and bring them back down? Well, they couldn't retrieve the bodies of Mariano and Alberto, no, because they were in very hard terrain and a a rescue group couldn't even get close to where they were. So how Safely. do they know that they were there? Like, do, do people witness this? Like, or is there constant communication with, like, maybe base camp? How do they know where people are at certain points? Well, they knew because they had talked to their friends in the base camp, you know, what they were doing, and they had a tracker. So the tracker was on. Oh, they were carrying a tracker. Yes, and they'd also talked on the satellite phone 
back to Spain when they were in their tent before they left okay. to, to go. So they told their plans and they'd headed off and the tracker was going at a pretty fast pace along the ridge and then, and then it went down all of a sudden 200 metres to the side down a slope and then it beeped out until the battery died. So to me it seemed obvious it was an avalanche. And then a few days later they, they got a helicopter and they went past the area and it was you saw the tracks into this huge slab avalanche straight into them. Like the tracks went straight into the avalanche. So it was pretty obvious what had happened. How did your family cope when you go out and do these things? I'm an only child. Uh, my mum and dad are separated. So my mum lives most of the time in India. She now, because she's getting older, she she spends six months of the year in Australia, but she's for a long time she was mostly in India since 2000. In fact, since I started mountaineering, she was mostly living in India. My dad... He he lives close to me and he's very sensitive. So, I don't know, he feels as though it's like karma that he had to go through the acceptance of me living my dream or passion, I suppose. The way that he reasons with it, I guess, is that he is very spiritual and he just feels like... I'm doing what I do and he trusts in that. That's the only way I can explain it. But in saying that, I can't tell him too much about it and I, do, I tell him not to watch movies about it because he'll, he won't sleep at night. Mm. Yeah, if you ever watch that movie Everest, <laughs> that's, that's the image I've had this whole time is bits well, and pieces exactly from that right. movie Everest. Exactly what like and the best part about that movie, because I went to the um, pre-screening or whatever, the the footage that they made on the the summit ridge of all the stuff that went on in the storm is exactly how it is. It's it's the best way that I can describe what it's like is just to watch that because that's. In a split second, you can die so easily just by accidentally clipping the rope wrong or anything that you do is, yeah, it's on the edge. To me, when I watch that, I like it hit home. It's like I can't describe in words to people what it's like up there, but that movie, I mean, especially for me because I had similar weather, <laughs> that movie really shows what it's like. I think they did a really good job of that. Okay. Like a lot of obviously dramatised for Hollywood and whatever with the story and the actors, but that part was um, the conditions. all the mountaineering. Yeah, all the mountaineering was like filmed with the help of adventure consultants, guides and stuff in New Zealand, and I think they did a really good job portraying what it's like in that respect. And you're married. Is your husband a mountaineer as well? He enjoys climbing and he's always been into the outdoors, etc. We've been together for about five years, I suppose, so not that long. He'd been more into trail running. He spent a lot of his 30s, you know, running like 200K a week and stuff like that. And then he sort of started his own business 
and which he's quite successful in. So what we say is he makes the money and I have a hobby job. (laughs) Do you have plans to go and conquer another mountain? Yes, I do. I'm heading off again quite soon, in fact, in April. I'm going to Nepal again to climb a mountain called Makalu, which I looked at from the Khumbu region for years, sort of behind Everest and Lhotse. So a completely different valley. And the reason why I sort of chose Makalu, apart from the fact that I've been looking at it for years and it looks amazing, is I'm just a little sick of no offence to people at all, the Everest region, because I've spent so much time there and it's very busy. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time trying to climb uh, Lhotse, so three trips now, which is, you know, my goal is to climb as high as I can without oxygen. So ultimately I still obviously want to do Everest without oxygen. So you would attempt it again? Yeah, it's a lot of money. Money is the thing that's the problem. Surely you can get sponsors. You are amazing. If there are anyone out there that wants to sponsor Ellie, jump on board. This woman is phenomenal and deserves it. And I will be cheering you on if you go and do that. I can't, it brings tears to my eyes. It really does. You're amazing. So I'm, well, anyhow, so I want to do, like, I'm trying to climb higher than Choyu without it as a sort of stepping stone, if that makes sense. How high is Makalu? It's basically 8,481 metres. Okay. And what's Everest again? 8,850. Okay. So it's like 400 metres below. Which is a lot still. Is like it? It doesn't height. sound very much to me when you're getting know, up that high. <laughs> It doesn't, but at that height, it's a lot. Since I, well, I lost my last climbing partner. However, when I was climbing on Lotsi, I met a wonderful woman called Rebecca from Norway. We happened to share a a base camp together, and she was climbing with with Sherpa, uh, Everest and Lotsi back-to-back using oxygen which she did, and she's very strong and, most importantly, very funny, and we shared a lot of jokes together. We climbed through the Kombu Icefall together, hung hung out on the mountain as much as we could, us two girls, because we're similar age in our 40s. That's who I'm climbing with, just us two girls. So not your husband. He's not going to be part of this. Does he just sit back? Where does, what does he do when you're doing this? He works. Okay, so he'll be back in Australia working while you're off doing this? He, he, he does get his five weeks off a year. Well, probably more than that, actually. But, and we just went ice climbing for five weeks uh, in December, January. So he loves to come and do cold things with me. So does he just sit at home like waiting for you to check in constantly when you're doing this? It'd be best to talk to him about how he deals with that. I do in Nepal. I have a sat phone, a very reliable sat phone that I that I ring and and chat 
to him on and I mean it's hard for him because he you know he's in the middle of work and then he'll have me call and be crying and say I'm at 7,300 meters and I've got gastro and I'm trying to climb and I don't have any energy and I'm feeling like crap and it's so far from what he's doing. And he can't do anything to help you which must be the hardest part. No, and he doesn't, like, he can't even, like, he doesn't want to help make my decision either, you know, because he knows, like, he just needs to go down. But he also knows, like, I need to get to that point myself, you know, and and he trusts me to make the right decisions for myself, you know, but it's not easy for him. And I couldn't even imagine having gastro at that high with everything we were talking about before. That sounds horrific. It was horrendous. Yeah, it sounds terrible. (laughs) I am very excited to follow, is it April that you said that you're going to do the next one? Yes. And I've got some support from Australian Geographic Society so far. The North Base have always supported me with gear and hopefully are helping towards other things as well this trip. Fabulous. I'll be following it. How can we follow you? What's your Instagram? Tell everybody so they can follow along. On Instagram, I'm Ali Pepper Adventures, which happens to be my business as well, uh, my guiding business. I guess on Facebook, I have Ali Pepper Adventures as well as my business page. On Facebook, I have my own website, alipepper.com, which when I do go on my 8,000-meter mountain trips, I will blog. Yeah, I'll add that in the description down below so people can follow along. Yeah. So, as I mean, as much as I can because I still don't know even if we're going to have internet at base camp because Makalu base camp is more remote. When you're done, we'll check in. <laughs> exactly. I might, I might have to get you back on after you do that one so you can tell us all about it. Well, yeah. Well, it's just, you know, like climbing that high without oxygen is really fickle in terms of success rate, yeah, you know, I always will go into it with the positive attitude, you know, but there's so many things that can, can happen, you know, make an unsuccessful trip. Mm. And I don't think people understand how, how hard it is without oxygen in terms of having, you know, not much of a safety back up and it's a lot more difficult everything is well i wish you all the best and i hope you smash it and i hope you make all your dreams come true because i think you're amazing and your passion for what you do is so exciting that it makes me even want to kind of go to base camp which i don't know i've never really wanted to yeah maybe maybe one day maybe i'll one day i'll hire you and you can take me to base camp sure Come along while I'm climbing something. Yeah, sounds exciting. (laughs) We are approaching our destination. Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts for the final five. What is your favourite town or city in the world? In terms of city, I probably am going to say where I used to live and where I've just come back from, which is Mendoza in Argentina. They have an amazing wine region. And because I speak Spanish, I know my way around. And every time I go there, I find new cool restaurants and 
places to take the clients before we go on our mountaineering expedition or when we come back. Yeah, we had a great time there this trip. It was I was just there a week ago and we just had great food, great steak. Okay. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Climbing in Colombia. I well, I didn't really get into, but they have at the side of the street people selling snacks as you're driving along. And we stopped to get some snacks. And one of the snacks was little packets of ants. They'd been deep fried. Oh, mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I may as well give it a go because maybe, like, if everyone's eating them, they, maybe they're really good, but they weren't. They just tasted like <laughs> They tasted like ants? <laughs> yeah, like, you know how ants smell? No, I don't. <laughs> I've never got down and smelt an ant. <laughs> That's what they tasted like. I was like, oh, I don't see the point in eating deep, you know, deep fried ants. <laughs> Well, that's still a very interesting thing to have tried. Okay, now I think I know the answer to my next question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Beaches or mountains? Oh, that's such a hard one. (laughs) Obviously mountains. A tourist site that you recommend is a must-see. I mean, there's so many. (laughs) And I'm not going to say Everest. (laughs) I'm going to pick something that affected me like really profoundly when I went there years and years ago. I'm intrigued. Torres del Paine. Oh, uh-huh. So Patagonia? Yes. It's on my list. We were meant to go there last time when I went to South America a few months back, but it was the wrong time of season. So it was all kind of shut down. Yeah, it's on my list. Is that your favourite? amazing. When you look at the towers and you look across the lake, it looks like a movie set. It's just like it's not real. It's just this huge... I don't know, I can't even explain. But I just remember when I was, like, younger, I, don't, I think I must have gone there in, like, 2002 or something like that, first saw them. And I've been to fit the other area, which is Chelten with Fitzroy and Serratore and that as well. But And that is also awesome. But, but Torres del Paine is the rock towers are around 1,000 metres high. And it's just so weird like it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden there's these huge big you know rock towers yeah it doesn't look real and I just remember thinking everyone on the planet needs to see this like this is just so amazing it looks stunning and it is on my list I will get there at some point it is amazing my final question can you say thank you in another language well I speak Spanish fluent Spanish and I can I can obviously just say thank you in uh, Nepalese. Go for it. Dunya bud. Dunya bug? Dunya bud. Dunya bud. 
Yes. Hmm, very good. Well, Donya Bud for joining me today. It's been amazing talking to you. I am so inspired by what you do. I have just loved listening to your stories and I'm sure you've got thousands more that we could hear. But I think I will probably get you back after you do your big next climb so we can hear all about it. Sure. I'd love to tell you some of the stories from the mountain from our girls trip. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.